You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wealth Tech on Deck. Thanks for joining us. I'm very excited about today's episode. Typically on our podcast, we explore issues and opportunities around the future of financial advice and more specifically, wealth tech platform strategies and execution. Today is a departure and I have a hunch you'll find it as fascinating as I do. So much of uh, the significant advances we see across the wealth tech space are driven by economics. That's pretty obvious. And these advances are ultimately driven and delivered through the stories we tell and the stories we hear. So today, we're going to hear from a friend of mine who works with some of the firms who are listening to this podcast around something he'll explain called narrative economics. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let me introduce John Connors. John is the CEO of of, uh, the Boathouse Group, a large Boston-based digital advertising and communications firm. So John, my friend, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Jack, thank you for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. So John, before we get to uh, defining narrative economics and why it's so important to advancing wealth tech strategies and execution, why don't you talk a little bit about your firm and your background? It's uh, pretty interesting. So fill us in. Well, thanks for the time, Jack. Good to connect. So I started Boathouse back in 2001, so 21 plus years ago. But before I started it, I had worked originally out of school at a big agency in Boston called Hill Holiday, one of the large U.S. agencies. They sold in 97 to Interpublic Group. And I went down to work in New York at McCann Erickson. So I went from working for the biggest in New England to the biggest in the world. And I hoped that by working for the Cokes and the Microsofts and the GMs of the world, that the BS volume might decline. But I think when I saw the global game, that the BS meter might have actually increased. And so (laughs) decided to sort of come back to Boston, come home and build my own firm. We called it Boathouse because the two of us that had started it together had wrote a pen. And if you've ever been in a boathouse, it's a pretty Spartan environment, not a lot of trappings. And we figured the agency business could use a little of that, you know, a little Spartan, non-trappings, no BS kind of environment. And so that was the model. And, and we've been building ever since. That's great. It was on your website. Still might be. I know things have rearranged a bit, but one of my favorite, uh, a couple of favorite comics, one one was about no BS. Uh, yeah, you want yeah. to hear that from your clients. And then, uh, pardon the expression, we're on a podcast, so you can say whatever you want, but no assholes allowed. So right. I love that. Uh, I love that sort of straight ahead, don't have to guess yeah. kind of uh, approach to communications. For the first 10 years, actually, the first line on when you arrived at our website was, humbly cutting through the BS uh, with BS spelled out. And uh, as we sort of increasingly won more and more corporate clients, you know, they just got more and more concerned about it. But we loved that it. it was the best sales filter we ever had because we'd never got any bureaucrats. We only got decision makers. Yep, and so, yep. and we were fortunate. We, you know, our first client was actually Merrill Lynch. So we arrived and started doing small projects for Paul Polito, who's now at UBS. And started you know, doing digital projects, building websites for them. And then 9-11 hit. And it was the first sort of really scary opportunity in the marketplace, obviously having built a business and 9-11 happening. But at Wall Street's level, advisors stopped calling their clients. Yeah, right? yeah, and so yeah. our job was to create a video that would inspire advisors to reach out and call their clients because it wasn't a sales decision at that time. Sure. The clients wanted to hear from the advisors that their money was safe and yep. that their goals were intact. Yeah. And that launched us to Total Merrill. And we started building sort of named and designed and launched Total Merrill to help 
sort of with a share wallet strategy back in 2001 under Gorman and Paula. And then we lived through 2008, Merrill, and made the transition to Bank of America with that whole, a lot of stories in that process. Yes, yes, I'm sure. And then sort of played that out for another seven years. So 15 years at uh, working for Merrill and really was the patron saint of Boathouse and the client that built us because we learned a ton about portfolio theory at the time. Yep, yeah. And we basically brought portfolio theory to the marketing business and how you manage marketing assets like you manage assets in a portfolio. Let me frame that if I could. So basically, way back when, when you started with Merrill, before Total Merrill was barely an idea, I recall that at least the timing of Total Merrill, I thought it was a fabulous campaign. Before that, it was more about transactions and Back then, there was things like cold calling and stuff that you don't hear about much these days. And then as things shifted, especially it was my recollection around 9-11, where we really wanted to have more of a relationship, not unlike, frankly, what we, where we are now with post-pandemic. It's, it's much less about investing per se and much more about the experience. And that sort of gets us to the topic for today. Maybe you'd tie in that what you learned there and how you're applying it today, because I know you're, you continue along the same track and it's evolved, certainly. And that gets us to a narrative economics. Maybe if you could thread that needle for us in terms of that connection. So I think a piece of our successor strategy has always been that we always knew it was about more than just the consumer, right? So Merrill was a classic example, like how you move the advisors to behave differently, how you move clients to behave differently, how you get the market to think differently about Merrill. So we've always been good at not just sort of over-indexing to one part of the marketplace, but looking at the whole market. And so that's been sort of a secret sauce underpinning this the business for a while. But it, it got a lot better when in 2018, this highly regarded economist, let's just say Robert Schiller, who you'll all know from Irrational Exuberance and Nobel Prize winner, he wrote a paper on narrative economics. And it was, it's been sort of a breakthrough for us because sort of if you can imagine taking portfolio theory and building narrative economics on top of it, his point is really a simple one, which is narratives drive economic impact, right? And again, most good CEOs know that, most good leaders know that. But what if you think about economics, they never had narrative data. They had economic data. They had GDP data. They had you know employment data. They had sort of housing data. But they never had narrative data to look at causality and correlation related to the economic data mm-hmm. until these firms like Google and others indexed every piece of content in the world. And now they'll do it every 15 minutes. You can sort of subscribe to these services. We'll index every piece of written and broadcast content social news, you know, radio, TV, print, everything, newspaper. And now podcasts. And podcasts. Yeah. Sorry for that. (laughs) And you can basically sort of the ability now for him to go back economically and take historical narrative data and sort of look at the causality to economic impacts. So he was looking at things like American dream narratives and how that drove the markets. He was looking at Bitcoin narratives and how those drove the markets, right? And so what we're seeing now in our business is CMOs are having a hard time, marketing departments are having a hard time, and brands are having a hard time. But when we walk in and start talking to CEOs about narrative, and when we talk about to boards about narratives, they light up, right? Because they think in terms of that. And I'll always use the Tesla example, and I'll ask the group in the room, can you name Tesla's tagline? And nobody can because Tesla doesn't have a tagline because they don't care about brand the way most companies do. They have five or six narratives that they manage, 
right? And you think about the Elon Musk narrative and you think about the rocket narrative and you think about the auto narrative and the solar narrative. He's a master at putting narratives in the market. And so what we're doing now with narrative economics is taking the principles of narrative economics and applying it to CEOs, applying it to companies and helping them think about how do you sort of structure a narrative to put it into market so that it has uptake. So in a, if ever to summarize, basically it's the company story. It's the company line. It's the company story. But now we can put science around what you've always been amazing at, what others sort of like you have been amazing at, which is the storytelling piece and how to weave a tale and how to make sure everybody in the room sees what's relevant for them in it. Mm -hmm. And I think what marketing has sort of done to itself not that the consumer isn't incredibly important or the core target, but there's so many other targets that, in fact, that impact the decision that if you don't connect to all of those targets, if you don't connect to how the government's driving the narrative or how the media is driving the narrative or how the politicians or the regulatory, you know what I mean? If you, if you miss one of those on your way to the end consumer, your end target, you know, you can destroy value in your company. So you and I have uh, just uh, some disclosure here. John and I do some volunteer work for a board, a local community thing that uh, we're involved with. And, and there we're doing narrative economics in the uh, not-for-profit space. We've had some conversations around uh, some folks in our industry, around some of the challenges and opportunities of those folks and what they're trying to do to advance the cause. And uh, as I boil it down, and I'd love to have you comment on this, as I boil it down, is there's sort of two sides to the equation. you, you got to listen to the marketplace, to all facets, all parts of the marketplace. And you've got to deliver a story that's compelling at the end of the day. And to me, that's that's being persuasive. In fact, I wrote a book about it. Namely, right. listen well and tell a story consistent with what the person just told you. In other words, what they're trying to achieve, what they're trying to, uh, where they're trying to get. So I, I think you agree, but why don't you put it in your own words and how does narrative economics play out in that way? You know me, like I'm a big believer in that, in the listen point. There's a great line, and I, I can't attribute it because I, I've just stolen it now. It's, I've used it so many times. <laughs> but 98.7% of Americans can hear, but only 4% listen. Uh, and I think <laughs> you have just way too many people talking without listening. Yeah. I think that the really interesting part about the way you can listen in the narrative context and the way Schiller sort of would guide you if you read his book is to go to, you know, if you think about you as a marketer or other folks on the phone, how they think about how they listen and how good is the data on their listening. So yep, you might yep. listen to social data or you might listen to anecdotal data to your board or, you know, boards are famous for always having strong opinions. There's not many people using tools like Signal AI or NetBase Quid to really quantify the listening in a way to say what narratives are in the market yep. on my brand, what yep. narratives are in the market on my industry. What narratives do I want to own and how am I getting from the ones I have, right? So to yeah. your point on the listening and the story are exactly right. The opportunity now is to have a data set. And again, this is where marketing, I think, in some cases can hurt itself because it takes the data sets and it's niched them so narrow that it's like a financial advisor telling you, well, your portfolio is getting crushed. But let me tell you about these two stocks that are outperforming in an incredible way. Like I yeah, know yeah, your, right. your net performance is tough. As if that matters. Exactly. And I think <laughs> That's the challenge of marketers that have it now. They don't have a framework to tell the whole portfolio story. They keep grabbing little pieces and trying to make the CEO and the board impressed. And I think where narrative changes that is you elevate and you can sort of tell a company where they stand at a glimpse 
yeah. where they stand relative to their competitors, what topics they own, what they don't, and you can just go. So one observation, I'd love to have you comment on this, is that Axios, which I follow daily, has this thing called smart brevity, which I recommend to our listeners. They basically talk how to communicate to pierce through given how overwhelmed and inundated we are with information. And none of us, and some of the statistics they have, I, again, I, I turn you over to Axios to take a look. They've studied this in a similar way to what you're describing, John. And that is that there's so much coming at you and people don't, you know, I forget what the statistic is, but very few of us ever get to the end of any story. So any article you write, by, by the time you're halfway through, you've lost most of your audience because we're, we're so pressed for time and so much information and so what I'm, I, you're just basically what ends up happening, you give up because you, you got to get on to the next thing. And, and unless it is compelling early enough on and is useful early enough on, you're going to move on. So what I'm hearing here is basically using the kind of data you're describing to create a larger story or at least a multifaceted story that hooks you to make you want to learn more. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, I think it's both. I think the, I think you can create a larger story. But it also, and you can see how this would work, what we're doing increasingly is creating more small stories yep, yep. more quickly. And then what you'll sort of, the more you study narrative theory, you'll see in evaluating contagion rates as yep, on yep. those stories. And so we can pump out multiple pieces, see which ones have uptake see, and yep. then lean into those narratives. And they all have to be within the context of the topics we want to own. But the idea now of, and again, it does work. Narratives work exactly like contagion rate. And the whole second half of his book is about that because you start to see people like I'll, I'll use 2008 as an example. In 2008, everybody turned on Wall Street, right, because of what was going on. But everybody defended their advisor. And we were doing the research for Merrill at the time. Right. So they people blamed Wall Street for what happened. But regardless, they defended their financial advisor. So what you know the, that's a classic example of of sort of if you had looked at the umbrella narrative or the larger narrative, you would have said, well, Wall Street financial services, Merrill Lynch, that's a dangerous place to talk from right now. But if you can tuck in behind the advisor, you see it in healthcare about how you tuck in behind nurses, right, and sort of build your narrative behind the nursing side rather than the big healthcare side. So even in bad situations. There's usually a narrative path, and if you can sort of isolate the data sets, you can spot that, and then you can sort of move your your company and your value through that. So I'm going to reveal something, which I probably shouldn't do, but here goes. So I've been uh, talking about this concept called UMH, Unified Managed Household, and I'd love to have you comment on this. And as you and I have spoken about this general topic, I'm a guerrilla fighter. You know, I'm a street fighter on this stuff. Yeah. I, I don't have the fancy quantitative analysis that a firm like yours can get their hands on, at least we can't afford to get our hands on. So it's we got to be street smart is essentially what we're doing. And so I've been talking about UMH for a good 20, 30 years. So it's been around as a concept. And at Lifefield, I've been talking about it for the past 13 years. And it's only within literally in the past, the past, I think it's two months, that now articles are pop popping up all over on UMH. Yeah. This unified managed household. And frankly, I'll be honest, I've worked at it. This has not been an accident. Yeah. And and it's driving the narrative and all that goes with it. So my this is my gut sense, my street smart sense, hopefully street smart, is that uh, this is good for the client, you know, improves outcome by a third. It's good for the advisor because when the client has more assets, they get more fees. And it's good for the firm because, frankly, it lowers compliance issues and, and increases revenues. 
So it's a win-win all around. So that's my narrative. I've been sticking to it for a long time. It's finally coming to pass. Am I in the right track? Is this is is that narrative economics? Yeah. First off, I would never doubt you, Jack. You know that from a starting standpoint. <laughs> but no, I think, again, a big part of it is there are moments in time when a market's open to a narrative and when it's not open yes. to a narrative, yes. right? Yes. And so as we were sort of in the window of baby boomer retirement and product proliferation and all the pieces, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think yeah. what you're seeing now, to your to your credit, I think you were probably ahead of the curve for the five or ten years that you've been talking about it, right? But now the technology is there, yeah, where the data is there, where these companies now can see a path to actually presenting UMH. Yes, and yeah. now it's a race to see who's going to pull it off. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so they all, you know, every. To the total Merrill example, people have been talking about assets held away from the firm for as long as time. Now, I think in this era of personalization and all the sort of the, the processing power and the data and the AI, as that all comes together, somebody's going to lead in yep. UMH, right? Yep. And yep. that's, the I think, one of the key races right now. Good. We win. Yeah, you win. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I hope you trademarked it. Well, no, no. Actually, I'll, I'll be honest. We avoid using that term because they got caught caught up with another thing that's a lesser version called UMA, Unified Managed yeah. Account. And the industry thought, basically, industry said, well, we'll come up with a UMA because we can do that. We can't do that UMH thing. It's too complex. Well, now, because to your point, the technology is such that it can be done. Still hard. Still, we work with clients every day. It's a challenge because of all that complexity, but it's happening. And now that another issue, and maybe you could make a comment on the the uh, condition called FOMO, people fear of missing out. So is, is, I'm assuming that's part of narrative economics as well. Yeah, I mean, I think we suffer from the FOMO challenge all the time because I can back to the portfolio theory example, imagine if if you had a portfolio and you just changed your favorite asset class every quarter based on, you know, whatever was hot in the market. So you ran to Bitcoin this time and then you ran to stocks and then you ran to bonds and then you went to like, you really have a performance issue. Yeah, yeah, if you yeah. think about the marketing equivalent, if the board chair's son works at Facebook, social media goes, everybody wants social. And then somebody says it's all about search. Then somebody says it's all about advertising and then it's all about content. And so what we see on the FOMO side is everybody runs to marketing tricks, thinking that there's some miracle cure that's going to make the brand sing. But I always sort of say to CEOs, it's like everything else in life. There's no tricks. You know, like if you don't eat right and exercise, you're probably not going to be healthy. If you don't execute a disciplined marketing portfolio and you just chase a FOMO strategy. And so we can actually show that to clients. Now we can show them the last five years of their media mix and show them that they're chasing bright lights and CMOs don't like when we do that, you know, but sometimes they know it. Well, this is fascinating. I, we try to keep our podcast to a half an hour. I'm sure we're going to go over on this one, which is perfectly fine with me, but we should at least start to bring it to a close. So what would be your advice to people that are listening in on the podcast that want to apply some of the things we've talked about to there for many key takeaways from today or advice you'd offer in terms of uh, how to uh, succeed in, in line with this concept of narrative economics? Yeah. I mean, I think you can find Schiller's stuff sort of wide open on the web. So the first piece I would do is is sort of just study the application to your business a little bit, you know, and see. Second, I would sort of push people to think in terms of narratives plus brand, 
right? Because I think what you see sometimes, especially in large organizations with the word brand, is it's this thing that gets owned by one person in the company. Why CEOs tend to like narrative better is because they see that as something the whole company owns. You know, ops, tech, everybody's responsible for narrative. And I think to the extent that brand becomes too verticalized and too precious and too owned by one person, it gets too narrow. And then the third piece to me is lean into those data sets. Like you can just imagine if you had that JP Morgan guide to the markets on your desk every day and you never opened it, you would be ever, you would be at a disadvantage if all that data existed. Equally, these narrative data sources are not too expensive now. I mean, you can get them at 20, 25 grand a subscription, you know what I mean? So you can look at your brand in the context of all the industry narrative really crisply now. And I think to your point, if you can use that to listen and you can use that to tell a better story and you can make sure that that story is in track, whether it's resonating with those key influencers, whether it's the media, whether it's the government, whether it's end consumer, whether it's B2B, you'll see the value implications immediately. Mm -hmm. Just a comment that I'll add here. For those of you that get what John's talking about, John, if they wanted to reach you, how would they, what's the best way to get in touch with you? You can always reach me by email, which is jconnors at boathouseinc.com. Which I highly recommend you check it out. Check out their website. I've suggested this to many friends and colleagues in the business. If you want to have a good read, very good content about how to position brand market your firm. Uh, the other thing I'll, I'll add, this is uh, just a, another secret uh, revealed. I'll tell you what I do because life field is small, so we can't afford what you're describing in terms of data sets. So basically what I do is I have conversations every single day with industry leaders, and I read everything I can about trends, and, and I synthesize what I read and then make my best attempt to then fulfill on what I listen for as an opportunity and build my story. By the way, the story gets built over time. It, it's not something that uh, it's one and done. It continues to evolve. So for those of you who are looking for the less costly and more seat of the pants version, there you have it. That's uh, that's what I do each day. So I'll uh, share that with you. I'll jump in on that, Jack. You There's another layer that you naturally do as well, which is the win-win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of people have the, what? how do I win? But I think it's another layer to the narrative piece, which is where's the win-win. Yeah. And I'll, I'll reinforce that. And I do talk about this, not that I'm plugging my book. You can read it if you'd like. It's on amazon.com. But one of the things I learned early on in my career, I was a wholesaler to start and I was calling on advisors. And I found if I showed them how to win, they would sell my product. And my product, frankly, was complicated. It was hard to understand, you know, so on. So in fact, I built my career doing seminars and talking about it to their clients where I did a financial planning seminar about how to have a secure retirement. That was the seminar. And frankly, we got hundreds of people to the seminar because it basically told them what to do. And then I turned them back to the advisor and they went and did it. And oh, by my, by the way, my product got sold in the process appropriately and win-win. And uh, that's another, you're right to point that out. That is, I'm always thinking that, how do I make sure the other side of the conversation wins? And when they win, frankly, I win. It's, it's, it's how it goes. So, John, we need to uh, close up here. This has been a blast. I knew it would be. It's better than I expected. So what what's one thing, we, as we ask our, our guests on each of our uh, our podcasts, what's something about you that's uh, not part of your workday life that uh, you're particularly passionate about, interested, excited about? Uh, what do you do away from work? So uh, my long-term goal is, is a year in Vermont, living off the grid, 100% sustainable off the grid year in Vermont. So we're sort of in the process now of sort of doing that. We're planning, we're buying the land, we're planning the 
sort of where the farm's going, where the meadow's going, where the animals go, where the vegetables, Great. fruits go. So I am 100% insane trying to. It's a, Is your wife in on this? She's in on it. It's a one challenge of whether we can live off the grid for one That's year. Great. That'll be the goal. Great. Good for you. I'm kind of doing that. I'm in Vermont as we speak and uh, not quite off the grid, I have to, I have to admit, but uh, close. So I might have to make my own bourbon for that year. You know, that <laughs> there is some locally made bourbon we should try, but in any event, I digress. So um, I want to thank our uh, listening audience as we uh, wrap up. Uh, our subscribers keep growing and word of mouth seems to be accelerating. We're over a thousand uh, folks that are listening to this podcast. So thank you for that. We appreciate it. If you have enjoyed uh, the podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share what we are doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. So John, thanks again. It's been a real pleasure. I look forward to our next conversation. Great to connect. Thanks for the time, Jack. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com. Yeah.